Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the military standoff between India and China was a matter of tension for all of Asia. From the Doklam confrontation to the more recent clashes in the Galwan Valley, trust between the two countries has hit a new low. The US Pentagon said in a report a few months ago, despite the ongoing diplomatic and military dialogues to reduce border tensions, the People's Republic of China has continued taking incremental and tactical actions to press its claims at the line of actual control. Military tensions may be rising, but on the other hand, trade with China is growing fast. India-China trade crossed the $100 billion mark for 2020 in October, according to data released by China's General Administration of Customs. That's a rise of 22.2% as compared with the same period last year. So what should we make of China? Is it a threat? Is it a vital trade partner? Or something else altogether? All Indians matter. We have on the show Manoj Keval Ramani, chairperson of the Indo-Pacific Studies Program and head of China Studies Research at the Takshashila Institution. His research interests range from Chinese politics, foreign policy and approaches to new technologies and addressing how India can work with like-minded partners to deal with the challenges presented by China's rise. Manoj writes a weekly newsletter, Eye on China, a one-of-a-kind brief that tracks developments in China from an Indian perspective and a daily newsletter analyzing news coverage and discourse in the People's Daily. He is also the author of the recently released book, Smokeless War, China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance, which discusses China's political, diplomatic, economic and narrative responses to COVID-19. Prior to joining Takshashila, Manoj spent over a decade as a journalist in India and China, where he helped set up digital newsrooms and train young journalists. Always nice to have a journalist on the show. Welcome to welcome Manoj. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me here. Manoj, uh, let's get into it, into it right away. What is the extent of the territory China has captured from India? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, uh, there's an official answer to that. But before I sort of get to that, uh, let me just sort of lay out the landscape uh, that there exists on the India-China boundary. Uh, there are three broad, three sectors, as they are called, uh, of the boundary. One is the the northern sector, the eastern sector, and the central sector. So the western, eastern, and central. And uh, the western sector is your Ladakh area. Uh, your central sector, uh, your middle sector is uh, the Uttarakhand area, uh, and where we also have Nepal in that region. And then, of course, you have the eastern sector, which is where you have Arunachal Pradesh. Um, and this is sort of three different areas where you have three different kinds of complications. Um, the maximum territory uh, that uh, officially, the, you know, from, from the point of view of the government of India, that is under Chinese control or illegal occupation, uh, is uh, a total. Is the total territory is forty-three thousand square kilometer. Uh, the bulk, the bulk of that uh, is in the western sector, which is uh, the Ladakh area, where there is about thirty-eight thousand square kilometers of territory, which is the Aksai Chin region, which is under Chinese control. And then about 5,000 odd uh, square kilometers is what uh, Pakistan had illegally given to the Chinese government uh, after Pakistan had occupied that territory, which is again in the Kashmir region. So uh, that's essentially the territory uh, that is within China's control. Um, and this has been the case uh, you know, since uh, the 1950s and 60s. So, yeah, that's uh, the nature of the territory officially. But how does China justify this aggression? 
Right. So I think that if we go back to history a little bit, I mean, I, I've just given you the Indian government's view on territory and control and things like that. Uh, but if you go back to history, what you will see is that uh, it's not as straightforward. Right. Uh, if you look at how when independent India emerged in 1947 and the People's Republic of China emerged in 1949, um, these two states inherited a very complicated frontier region where it wasn't necessarily clear whose territory is exactly where. Like these things were not fairly, uh, you know, they were not delineated, they were not discussed between both the countries and they were not commonly agreed upon. So at no point uh, in the history of independent India and the history of the PRC was there a common demarcation and delineation of territory and boundaries. Uh, in 19, you know, before 1954, where India issued its official maps, uh, the Indian government had clearly in its first sort of map said that the territory in the Aksai Chin region is undefined. Your boundary is undefined. Uh, in 1954, we issued maps in which we said clear definitions of that. And the Chinese never agreed to that. So that's the first thing. Uh, in the eastern sector where you have the dispute, uh, you know, uh, around Arunachal, the boundary that India calls as the boundary line is the McMahon line, which was based on an agreement signed between uh, then government of India under the British rule, uh, the, uh, the Tibetan administration and uh, the representative from the Qing dynasty of China. Uh, but uh, from the Chinese government, sorry. And that agreement was also not something that the Chinese government agreed to. It didn't eventually sign the agreement. It didn't agree to it. Uh, but the McMahon line sort of emerges from there. Uh, and the Indian government says, this is our boundary. Uh, so it's not like there is clear definitions or acceptance on both sides of where the boundaries lie. Uh, we have our own view. The Chinese have their own view. Uh, and in terms of physical control of the territory, uh, again, go back to 1947 when India was independent. It's not like the Indian administration physically controlled the territories of Aksai Chin or our administration did not extend till there. In fact, even in, say, Arunachal Pradesh, where Tawang is concerned, it was only in the 1950s that India started actually exercising control. We especially sent somebody there to exercise the administrative control to make the claim that this is Indian territory. Uh, and that's because at least we had the McMahon line to go by over there. In, uh, in the Aksai Chin region, we didn't have a clear sort of line. So I, I think it's a little bit more fuzzy, uh, but because once you issue maps and those create a certain consciousness about your geography and about your territorial boundaries and about your sense of sovereignty, um, that is inherited. So I think that's where, that's how I would sort of look at this issue. Uh, and I think, again, at a, as a Indian citizen, yes, I see that as India's territory. Uh, at a government level, I would think that, yes, governments have to make that claim. Uh, governments can't be sort of soft on sovereignty and territorial integrity. But this is also challenging because how do you negotiate if you become so rigid, uh, particularly when the ground realities are a little bit different, right? You control certain areas, they control certain areas. Right. But what about the human tone so far in terms of soldiers and civilians killed? That's certainly uh, a large number, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, just a little bit, uh, of, uh, you know, let's go back to history again. Uh, in the 1960s, obviously, we had a war in 1962, uh, which was again uh, in this region where we are currently having these tensions also. Uh, and uh, one of the challenges is this, right, uh, that uh, the human toll from then uh, to 2020 has been largely contained. Both countries have managed to sort of uh, come to a certain modus vivendi and make sure that there is no human toll. In uh, last year, like you in your previous question, had asked what is the reason for the aggression. Um, last year, there was aggression from the Chinese side. I mean, there was there was 
you know, over these last 40, 50 years, we'd come to an agreement about how do you patrol these areas where we may have this dispute. Uh, and with changes over time, uh, power differential between India and China, India building infrastructure, uh, the Chinese building infrastructure, and therefore both forces coming more into contact with each other, friction over time has increased. Of course, Chinese aggression has also increased. Uh, and this is evident in sort of, if you just go back to the last decade, you will see that there have been increasing numbers of standoffs, right? Like say in uh, 2013, there was a standoff in the Depsang region in Ladakh uh, that lasted for 20 days. Uh, subsequently, in 2014, there was a standoff in Chumar that lasted for 16 days. Uh, then we had Doklam, and today we have Galwan, uh, and the standoff that's currently ongoing. Um, so there has been a gradual increase in this tension uh, along the boundary. And I think that has to do partly with infrastructure, but also partly to do with uh, the geopolitics of India and China and the relationship between China and the United States and so on and so forth. Um, what uh, has happened last year, we've seen that the Chinese PLA essentially stepped into uh, areas where India would customarily patrol and they tried to block Indian patrols. That led to greater friction. And they also, at certain points, created a, a encampments, which led to, led to friction. And subsequently, we had these standoffs. Um, the Chinese argument is that is the exact opposite. They say, uh, you know, they say that uh, it was the Indian side which, uh, you know, blocked customary Chinese patrols. Uh, and they said that since April this year, it was the Indian side which started to unilaterally and continuously build roads, bridges, and other facilities uh, along the LSC, particularly around the Galvan Valley. And despite China sort of making protestations and saying, please don't do this, uh, we didn't stop. And then uh, in early May last year, Indian border troops crossed the LAC uh, and trespassed into Chinese territory, as they call it. Uh, and then they built sort of fortifications and barricades over there. And so that's their argument, that this is what the Indians have done, and we have not done this. And therefore, we are just simply uh, defending ourselves. Uh, and again, that's uh, that's their narrative. Uh, I don't believe it because it seems that China is constantly finding itself in tricky positions to defend itself uh, against adversaries with whom it enjoys a massive power uh, differential in terms of the advantage of power. So it would be strange that these adversaries who are, uh, you know, who have such an asymmetry uh, end up provoking China. And I don't know why the world ends up provoking China. So I don't buy their narrative, but that's their narrative. <laughs> Well, in recent times, the Doklam standoff and the Galwan Valley clashes have been the most prominent ones. Now, just for the listeners, what exactly was the Doklam standoff all about and what is the situation there now? And also, Doklam is part of Bhutan, so why does India care? Yeah, right. I mean, I think, uh, again, let's first go back to history. Right In 1949, India and Bhutan signed this uh, uh, Treaty of Peace and Friendship. And uh, that treaty sort of quite clearly, uh, you know, uh, Article Three of that Article Two of that treaty quite clearly says that, uh, you know, the government of Bhutan agrees to be guided by the advice of the government of India in regard to its external relations, uh, and India takes a certain security guarantee also with regard to Bhutan. So uh, that's the first thing, right? The relationship is very different. It's not of uh, sort of straightforward normal states. That that treaty that treaty guides the relationship. Um, secondly, Bhutan, again, like India, has a disputed, uh, has a territorial dispute with China, not just a boundary, but also territory. Uh, and uh, what happened in 2017 was this, that you had the PLA uh, has been making, uh, you know, over a period of last you know, decades, the PLA has been building border infrastructure. Uh, but in 2017, they were building a particular road, which would go up to this location called Champeri Ridge. 
um, from an Indian point of view, uh, that road development not only obviously intrudes into what is Bhutanese claimed territory, but uh, it also presented a security threat because it brought the PLA closer to uh, potentially uh, threatening the Chumbi Valley or the Siliguri Corridor. Uh, and that essentially, which is again this narrow sort of chicken's neck, uh, which connects the mainland of India to the northeast of India. Uh, and the threat essentially was in that context. Uh, and therefore, the Indian government, the Indian sort of military essentially intervened to stop that road development. Now, uh, the Chinese argument was that you were intervening in an issue which where you did not claim territory. And that's true. India was intervening in an issue where India does not claim territory or has a territorial dispute. Yet. Uh, in 2012, uh, the Special Representatives on Boundary Affairs, which is a mechanism for India and China to talk about the boundary issue, uh, and which has been a mechanism since uh, for quite a couple of decades now, um, they had uh, apparently agreed that any issues with regard to tri-junction, and this is an area where India, Bhutan, and China have a tri-junction of boundary, uh, would be done. Would be you know you don't change the status quo over there, and you sort of have a conversation with each other and settle things by dialogue. Now, the, this road building would fundamentally impair India's security. Uh, and therefore, the Indian Army intervened to stop that road building. That's about it. It did not do anything else. Um, the PLA obviously protested. Now, uh, eventually, the PLA was frustrated uh, and the Chinese side was frustrated. And uh, for a couple of months, you saw really bellicose rhetoric coming from China. Um, threatening war even at one point of time. For example, they reprinted the 1962 People's Daily Editorial, which was a precursor to the war in 1962. And uh, eventually, obviously, there was supposed to be a BRICS summit in Xiamen, if I'm correct, and uh, the Chinese eventually and worked out a deal with the Indian side, where essentially both sides would claim disengagement uh, and they would sort of back off. Uh, and the Chinese would not build that road. Uh, what has happened since then is that uh, they've moved away, but they've continued to build infrastructure. Uh, and actually, reports will tell you that both sides have sort of built far more fortifications on that side to keep an eye on each other uh, and to make sure that things don't change. But, you know, there is only to a certain degree that the Indian side will go and, inter and sort of physically uh, uh, interfere to sort of stop the Chinese from building because that is related to our security. Further down, uh, whatever the PLA builds, it's difficult for India to step in and sort of stop those things. So that's essentially what happened in Doklam. To me, the most significant thing is not just that it started to, it led to some degree of uh, military development and, you know, building of infrastructure, development of positions on both sides. But the Chinese have continued to build infrastructure uh, on their side of things. Um, and they've continued to fortify their positions. The bigger problem was that it sort of led both sides uh, on this downward spiral in their relationship and it showed that, you know, uh, things can be very, very tenuous. Right. Let's talk about Galwan for a moment, which happened in June 2020, as you said. Uh, it's said to be the most violent encounter between the Indian and Chinese armies in 45 years, claiming the lives of at least 20 Indian soldiers. What's the situation on the ground there now? Right. So, uh, yes, Galvan did claim the life of the Galvan clash, did claim the life of 20 Indian soldiers. And the media reports that we have and the narrative that's come out, it just it tells you that it was a violent encounter. Both sides have a rule uh, ha as part of their agreements, which have been signed since late 1980s and 1990s onwards. Uh, there's an agreement of not carrying lethal weapons, uh, you know, along the boundary. 
Uh, and therefore, you sort of, you know, if you remember, there were these reports about uh, spiked clubs and things like that being used. Uh, so, yes, it was obviously a terrible situation. There were 20, 20 fatalities from the Indian side and at least four fatalities that the Chinese have officially announced. Um, so that's the death toll. In terms of what's the situation, what's happened since then is that uh, I think that neither side would have wanted that sort of confrontation because neither side really wants an escalation that is beyond their control. Because I think both sides realize that uh, a prolonged conflict is in neither strategic interest. Uh, yet uh, there is a hardening of positions and therefore you're seeing some of these things happening. In terms of what has happened since then, well, they've had a number of talks. We've had uh, 13 rounds of core commander level talks. Uh, the 14th round of talks is expected to be held in late December, uh, but then we'll have to wait and see whether that actually takes place. Uh, through these talks, there have been uh, some there has been some degree of disengagement. Um, the troops uh, from India and China were in eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation at various friction points, uh, Galwan being one of them, but also the north and south banks of the Pangong. So uh, there was a, in August last year, there was a sort of friction at the Kailash range, uh, which the Indian forces eventually occupied certain certain heights over there. Um, and eventually there was a discussion on de-escalation. Uh, but de-escalation has not happened. What I mean by de-escalation is that the troops that everybody has brought forward, the mass of troops estimated to be 50,000 at least on each side, those have not gone back to the barracks. But what has happened is that the small number of forces who were in eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation, uh, they have stepped back from a number of different locations. So Galwan being one of them, Gogra being one of them, uh, the banks of the Pangong Lake being one of them, India vacated the Kailash, uh, the heights on the Kailash range that it had captured in late August. Um, so there has been some disengagement uh, of this eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation, but the build-up that both sides did, uh, you know, to support their troops at the front line, that has sustained. There's also been drills uh, on both sides uh, to sort of demonstrate the resolve and to sort of have preparedness. Uh, so that has sustained. Another area where there has been tensions, which uh, the Indian government says predates the 2020 standoff, is the Depsang region. Uh, this is a plains region where, uh, again, the Chinese PLA has blocked Indian patrols from where Indian patrols used to customarily go. Uh, and again, this is a huge issue because it sort of cuts off Indian uh, army from access to certain areas. Um, but that And that also continues. So we've still got certain friction points where disengagement has to still take place. Then there is this entire process of de-escalation where you pull back and go back to the barracks. Uh, and then there is a process where you need to talk about, okay, how will we engage with each other in the future? Because we are going to keep having this friction because we are going to both patrol these areas. And since 1988, after Rajiv Gandhi's visit to China and then subsequently in the 1990s and 2000s, you worked out these bunch of agreements to set a set in place protocols for this engagement. The events of last year have broken down those protocols. So how do you rebuild those? How do you rebuild confidence uh, that you know this will not happen? Uh, and how do you rebuild confidence at the ground level between both the forces? That's a long-term process. Um, so even if you hear tomorrow of disengagement and de-escalation beginning, don't think of it as, uh, you know, things are going to go back to normal the way they were. Manoj, let's talk about the big one now, Arunachal. What exactly is China's claim there? 
Yeah, so I mean, uh, officially from the government of India's point of view, uh, you know, and this is Rajnath Singh speaking to parliament earlier this year, he said that uh, China claims about 90,000 square kilometers of Indian territory uh, in the eastern sector, uh, which is basically Arunachal Pradesh. Um, I don't think the Chinese have put out a formal claim that they claim all of Arunachal's territory, but our assumption is that they do claim a lot of that. And that stems from the fact that they don't accept uh, uh, the McMahon line as the boundary. Uh, and secondly, uh, that uh, there is this argument of greater Tibet and all of that being part of uh, you know, historical Chinese territory. Uh, and in, from that context is where we make this inference. Of course, uh, you know, claim all you want. Uh, it's uh, much more, It's you know, it's the same thing as where it is in Excite Chin, right? Uh, it, the Indian state exercises effective control and jurisdiction uh, over that territory. And even though there may be claims, it's really not a case that those claims are going to uh, reach any uh, fruition because uh, for that you will need conflict and you will need large-scale conflict. And again, holding territory and all of those are complicated things in today's day and age. Uh, if they were complicated in the past, today they are even more complicated. So that's the claim that they have. Well, sir, despite several rounds of talks and now we have conciliatory noises made by both sides, uh, n- nobody believes, obviously, that China is keen to return any of the territory it has taken over and is, in fact, even building infrastructure and uh, villages there. Why have we failed to prevent this or failed to make any headway on this front? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really difficult for the Indian government to stop the Chinese government from doing building infrastructure or villages in areas where China exercises effective control in jurisdiction. You know, uh, unless you go and change the status quo by force, how do you stop them from doing that? So that's the first thing, uh, that these are villages that are being built in territory which the Chinese government controls physically and exercises jurisdiction over. So while India claims these places to be its own territory, um, it's very difficult to do anything, right? Because uh, unless you enter into a conflict. So the failure to be able to do something is, I look at from that point of view. Secondly, I'm, there is, like I said, you know, when I began that, uh, if you go back to history, you will see that in some of these places particularly, the history is very, very complex. It's not as straightforward. So any negotiation on territorial give and take, uh, you know, or resolving this border sort of issue will require some degree of give and take. Uh, and it will require that from the Chinese side and it will require that from the Indian side also. Um, there have been different opportunities in the past. 1950s was perhaps the best opportunity where we had, but there was an indication that there might be some sort of a package deal that the Chinese may be interested in. In the 80s also, there was a stock of some sort of a package deal that the Chinese may be interested in, where they accept the McMahon line while we accept some of their claims in the Aksai Chin region. Um, so there was so there were these opportunities, but they didn't. But they weren't necessarily as straightforward and as you know. And neither did they sort of work out uh, the way one would have hoped. And for various reasons, which uh, I won't go into. So if you are assuming that the Chinese will unilaterally want to settle some of this, that will not happen. Over the last twenty twenty five years, uh, in our talks with uh, Beijing, um, we still don't have clarity on what their exact claim lines are. Uh, you know, if you read uh, Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon's book, he talks about a negotiation where the Indian side said that, okay, let's exchange maps so that we understand what claims are. And uh, the Chinese side essentially balked at sharing uh, maps. And their fear is that once you share a claim line, that becomes your de facto 
state of negotiation. You know, or when you share also then what you believe is the line of actual control, not even your claim line, but what you believe is the line of actual control, that becomes the de facto boundary because then, you know, states will say, that, well, okay, eventually let's negotiate on this basis. So I don't expect them to obviously give back any of the territories or, you know, but uh, uh, I mean, that's far-fetched, but even like negotiation has been very difficult. Manoj, how do you see things playing out over the next five years? For instance, there is a fear that China will attempt to take over even more Indian territory. Right. I mean, look, I, I don't think, I think it's really difficult to take over sizable chunks of territory and to hold on to those. Uh, and I don't think that that is necessarily, I mean, even if last year, if you see what has happened, uh, the territory in question is, in terms of size, it's not something major, it's small. Uh, yet some parts are, yes, uh, of uh, security implications that are there in some parts, for example, the Dipsang Plains in particular. Uh, but it's not like if the Chinese are taking over the Pangong Lake, they are tilting the strategic balance in their favor or they've occupied tremendous amount of territory or anything like that. I don't think their interest is in to occupy territory. Uh, I think their interest is uh, political. So this is, uh, you know, this friction on the boundary is not about a couple of hundred square kilometers here or there. And even with saying 100, I'm being generous. I mean, I'm, it's not even about a couple of 10 square kilometers here and there, which is what essentially happens. What this is about is about the sort of political relationship between India and China, about the nature of China's rise and the place that it sees for itself in the world, about China's relationship with the United States uh, and its sense of anxieties of India's role in that dynamic. Uh, I think it's about that. And I think it's also about using the territorial dispute, the boundary dispute, as a political tool to ensure that any Indian government always remains under pressure. Uh, and finally, you know, like it's, it's really easy for a small skirmish to create political friction within India domestically, uh, you know, to challenge the Indian government domestically. Uh, and finally, of course, as long as you keep the land boundaries uh, you know, in a state of agitation, India needs to spend for continental defense. India cannot spend on maritime development as much. So you keep your energies divided. Uh, and that serves China's interest if India is not spending on maritime power development. Uh, so I think it's about much more than just a couple of square kilometers of territory here. In also, Manoj, China's territorial ambitions or claims go well beyond China. In fact, uh, it's impacting countries from Bhutan to the Philippines, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, with Bhutan, there is a historical dispute. I mean, uh, that's the uh, India and Bhutan are the two land boundary disputes that the Chinese have not settled uh, since the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Um, so that's a continued dispute. And uh, they uh, just recently, they've had another conversation. So they're going to restart talks on that. Um, with, say, the Philippines and the others, so there's a huge maritime area where the Chinese have, uh, you know, a dispute with uh, many countries different claimants in the South China Sea. Uh, there's a dispute with uh, Japan over the Senkakus or the Jiayu Islands. Um, so there are many more disputes. And essentially, from the Communist Party's point of view, it looks at these disputes as essentially a historical reassertion of China's sovereignty over these territories. Now, this claim is rests on really, really flimsy history. Uh, as the sort of, uh, you know, the UN trial, the Hague Tribunal, which looked at the case between the Philippines and China, essentially dismissed this historical claim that the Chinese are making. So it rests on really weak and flimsy history, but from a Chinese 
government point of view, from the Communist Party's point of view, it looks at these and it says, like, look, these are historically our territories. We need to claim them back. And as we rise, as we become this great power, uh, which, for which the sort of terminology that they use is as we achieve national rejuvenation, part of this rejuvenation is to reclaim these lost territories. Uh, you know, of course, I've not even mentioned Taiwan at the moment, but yeah, Taiwan is another sort of territorial dispute that remains. Um, so there are many, it's not just one, but it's all linked to this sense of history of being humiliated, of achieving uh, rejuvenation and revival and going back to this golden past where China was for the lack, you know, to, to make it sort of stereotypical was the center of the earth, was the Middle Kingdom. Manoj, let's talk a little bit about uh, economics and trade now. Curiously enough, as tensions rise with China, trade with China is actually widening. I said earlier it's crossed $100 billion for 2021 in October. So obviously it's gone beyond that by the time we are speaking in mid-December. What is the nature of this trade and what do we make of this dichotomy? Right. Uh, at the outset, I, I should say that uh, I'm one of those who is not alarmed by this number uh, and who does not find it problematic. Uh, I'm one of those who believes that it's good that India-China should trade. Uh, and I'm happy to see more trade. Uh, but there is a caveat over there which I'll get to. Um, so the idea is that, look, uh, our trade with China is essentially uh, a case where India exports a lot of primary goods and it imports a lot of electrical machinery, pharmaceutical API, more sort of capital-intensive goods. Um, so therefore, the trade balance is going to be skewed, right? Um, in this last year, what we have seen sort of the trade crossing 100 billion, I think that's a bit of an anomaly. Uh, and that's largely because of the pandemic uh, and because of the kind of uh, health supplies that India has imported from China. Um, so I, I don't think that's necessarily sustainable over the long run. Um, but the dynamic of India-China's trade remains the same, right? That India exports primary commodities, whereas it's importing more sort of uh, expensive electrical goods, chemicals and things like that. And that dynamic needs to change. There are a couple of things for that to happen. One of the one of the things that needs to happen is that India needs to be uh, Indian industry and manufacturing obviously needs to become much more competitive. That's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, the Chinese need to be much more open to purchasing Indian products. They have there are restrictions say on Indian pharmaceuticals, so there is a lot more that the Chinese need to open up to. The third thing is that um, from an Indian point of view. We need to look at trade, our trading future with China from a strategic lens. Uh, what I mean by that is that we shouldn't be wanting to, you know, reducing trade is not equivalent to reducing vulnerability. We should be identifying areas of vulnerability which have sort of national security implications. So our purchase of Chinese uh, pharmaceutical APIs is one example where we are overwhelmingly dependent on China. Uh, and that gives the, that gives Beijing a bit of an advantage if it wants to use that advantage. So we need to be creating resilience. That doesn't mean that we should not be buying APIs from China. Uh, the reason we buy those is because uh, it is, there is a comparative advantage. There is a competitive advantage. So, But we should be creating resilience because we don't want... This is a critical sector, as we realized in the last two years because of the pandemic. Health is a critical sector. So we need to be creating resilience so that we can't be coerced by somebody using that. So that's an example of uh, something like that. Uh, likewise, in other areas, like again, in health, we've learned about PPE kits and things like that and masks. Uh, there are things that we need to sort of identify and say that these are uh, vulnerabilities. Uh, and when it comes to telecommunications, 
we've seen that you know in 5g we can't have chinese equipment in the core of our systems because when we do that we end up giving away pharma power to an adversary who has demonstrated uh, uh, you know ill intentions towards us so we need to be a little bit more careful but do we need to cut off all trade do i need to stop buying you know uh, furniture do i need to stop buying other things which china is selling to me because of a comparative advantage no because it you know cheap goods cheap mobile phones uh, also promote consumption in india i mean today if we were to cut off all trade from china it will firstly hurt india's exports because chinese imports into india contribute about 30 to 35% of foreign value added in indian exports so it will firstly hurt our own exports secondly it will hurt consumption uh, today if you are going to cut off on things like mobile phones and all of that um you know cheap mobile phones in the hands of indians are what is what is creating this digital india connectivity governance and all of that we need that um so we need to be smarter about this we don't need to take we don't need to be throwing our televisions out of our balconies <laughs> um you know uh, we need to be a little bit we need to be a little bit smarter about this so that's my sort of view on trade sure just taking just extending that uh, conversation further uh, the make in india program was clearly meant to position india as an alternative to china as the world's factory or production backend have we actually affected china at all on that front yeah i mean look i think it's really difficult right i mean there are tremendous advantages that the chinese system has provided right they have uh, and you know you're playing back, you're playing catch up and i don't think we should be looking to compete um uh, we'd argued this i'd argued this in a paper that we published earlier this year in which we basically said look um a couple of things have taken place in the world one is that um, there is an there is a broad based undermining of the philosophical argument for free trade you know and the global sort of trading system is essentially collapsing on itself in that sense the rules of the you know uh, and that's where this concept of trade becoming more strategic is coming into play that uh, creates certain challenges but also opportunities for us um we are not going to be able to compete with china in terms of just its infrastructure connectivity in terms of its uh, you know the sort of soft connectivity the systemic connectivity that it allows it to sort of trade the way it does apart from just the space for manufacturing but also in terms of just how the entire supply chain and logistic structure is set up uh, if you're going to try to catch up with that you're going to struggle because uh, they've had a massive head start so we don't need to try and catch up with that what we need to try and do is that uh while we figure out our own domestic reform and our own infrastructure development which is never going to happen overnight there are certain areas in which states who would otherwise have incentivized their companies or been okay with companies investing in markets based on efficiency will now look at political reasons for not investing again issues of vulnerability so european countries america japan australia east asian countries they're also looking at the world and saying well okay we can't have tremendous dependency on one market for our sourcing we need to diversify because let's assume nothing political happens but there is another sort of shock like the pandemic and you see a shutdown that happens like say when china when the when the pandemic began uh, there was a tremendous shutdown uh, that hurt supply chains across the board from auto chemicals medicine everything so companies are also looking at resilience that creates an opportunity for us now that coupled with 
sort of the political imperative of governments wanting to reduce dependencies on china uh, creates opportunities for us in certain domains you know critical technologies uh, vaccines like we have seen i think those are the kind of opportunities that we need to tap um it's not like we are not competitive in making low end manufacturing products right now we have clearly not been able to sort out the reforms that are needed for that uh, and there's a broad set of reforms needed for that uh, while we do that we should at least take advantage of these uh, you know these sort of opportunities that have opened up because of the nature of geopolitics well india and china are these two great regional rivals and competing economies given that is there any hope of a truly productive relationship with china in, in the long term what will it take for us to achieve that i think the first thing that it would take is for the chinese government and for xi jinping to look at india and to start to value the indian market uh, and peace along the boundary uh, it's important for the chinese government uh, and it, I, i mean i'm i'm purposely saying this because i think it's not just something i mean i don't know if i should be speaking in hindi but there's a lovely hindi phrase right tali ek hath nahi bachti hai so at the end of the day it's uh, for the chinese government to also take into account that if it wants a secure external environment it must also take care of other security so that's the first thing that i would say that it's important for china to do that um in terms of competition that's going to remain right you're seeing india and china i mean in history there are very few cases in history where two major powers have risen side by side neighbors have risen uh, and that rise has been peaceful so there's always going to be stress and com- competition there's also going to be volatility in this relationship yet uh, the hope is that both sides and so far i think despite the friction it is clear that both sides value uh, you know not going to not letting conflict become deeper um, you know the loss of life that happened last year in galwan led to steps being taken from both sides to at least come to the table immediately uh, and that's i think good uh, uh, that you know that at least we are talking Uh, there are many more forums that we are also talking at which is also good but in the long run i think the relationship is going to remain difficult and volatile um a lot of it depends on how quickly and how efficiently india bridges this tremendous asymmetry of power that exists between india and china um we won't be able to completely bridge it even over the next 20 years particularly if current trajectories are some to be kept in mind uh it's not easy right china is about a 15 16 trillion dollar economy we are a 3 trillion dollar economy even if they grow at 4% or 3% and we grow at 8 9% it's still a long way to bridge that gap uh, and then to be able to use the wealth that you create to create other instruments of power armed forces cyber this that so it's it's a long sort of challenge for us but unless you start to bridge that gap you're going to see this relationship becoming much more vulnerable much more volatile and as you even bridge that gap there will be volatility still um so i i think therefore for the next sort of 5 7 years i see a very difficult relationship i don't see an easy relationship uh but again it depends on you know the polit- geopolitics the role of the united states uh, how the sort of cards fall around the world also uh, it's not just about the bilateral dynamics manoj let me shift uh, track a little bit now tell us about the work you do at the takshashila institution and also about your book Yeah, so uh, so that's really fun. I mean, the work that we do is a lot of fun. It's uh, a lot of the stuff that I spoke of, spoken about is sort of things that are ideas that I sort of grapple with on a daily basis. Uh, as you had introduced earlier, saying that you know I chair the Indo-Pacific Studies program. Um, we basically there are two sort of broad prongs to that. One is obviously trying to 
uh, understand what's happening in China and what's happening with Chinese foreign policy uh, and try and interpret that and also recommend policy measures to the government. Uh, the other is uh, looking at uh, India's interests uh, and what India should be doing and how India should be partnering with uh, like-minded partners and states to achieve some of those objectives, uh, you know, and the quads, for example, is one example of that. And what should India be doing with the quad? How should India be going about exploring that partnership? So that's the kind of stuff that we are engaged with uh, on a daily basis. And that's sort of just the Indo-Pacific program. But we also have uh, a specific research program looking at uh, high technology geopolitics uh, that deals with a lot of tech issues, standards, uh, data, so on and so forth. Uh, and then we have a health and life sciences research program and a research program on economics. Um, we also have a policy school where we teach. So, you know, our philosophy for transforming India uh, and India's governance and development is that you connect good people to good ideas, to good networks. Uh, and our policy school and teaching of public policy is one approach to try and sort of create those good ideas and bring good people together and create a good network and then try and see if that sort of community can expand so that not just public discourse, but also policy discourse and policy action in India uh, is driven with far more, uh, you know, is driven with economic reasoning, driven with certain values of tolerance, pluralism, so on and so forth. Um, uh, and of course, lastly, we are also a quasi-media organization, so we do a lot of writing in public domain, uh, podcasts, videos, and so on and so forth. And what about your book? So uh, the book is essentially uh, a look at, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese government's response to the pandemic, uh, like it says, it's, it's diplomatic response, it's narrative response, it's action policy response. Um, it's a story of the last uh, year and a bit, uh, but I sort of look at historical context, I place it all in historical context in terms of what animates uh, the Xi Jinping administration, uh, what is it that the Chinese leadership uh, is telling itself about the nature of the world? How does it see the world and how does it see competition and where did the pandemic sort of accentuate? What are the features that the pandemic accentuated? What are the features that it, what are the threat perceptions that it created? Uh, and what are the sort of policy direction that we are going to see from China? So it's a set, it's a story of the last year and a half or so, but it also uh, is placed in historical context. And towards the end of the book, uh, I talk about, uh, you know, the China US relationship in particular, and I talk about, uh, potential policy direction and potential nature of geopolitical competition over the next five, seven years, um, you know, do a little bit of crystal ball gazing based on the events of the last year or so. So Manoj, here's a question I ask all my guests at the end of the conversation. Why do you do this work? That's a really difficult question to ask. <laughs> but I think uh, I begin by saying that uh, I do it partly because I enjoy it. Uh, I find sort of stimulation uh, intellectual stimulation uh, in it. I, and I think that uh, uh, on an everyday basis, there's something new to explore. Um, and I say that after having been a journalist, and journalists are supposed to be quite high-strung who do things, who are constantly engaged. Um, and I think that moving away from journalism into policy uh, has been really, really, it's been good for my mental peace because while I'm constantly engaged, I'm not high-strung. Uh, I'm, I'm, it allows me to sit back and sort of look at the world and just see what's happening. Um, and I think it's allowed me to engage with some of the questions which I think are going to be definitive uh, over the course of the next generation. Um, and th that's, I think, been the sort of real joy, right? You've been able to sit back and engage in some of that. And it's a real 
uh it's a real luxury in some way it's a real thing to be able to sit back for somebody to be able to say that look i want you to also do this and for you to also derive joy out of what you're doing um so i think that's why i do what i do i think that these are questions that are extremely important uh for not just uh, you know intellectually but also at a real world level for india over the next 10 15 years manoj thank you for helping us understand what is a very complex issue and but also one that is critical to security not just national but also economic thank you so much thank you so much for having me and uh, i mean i i would would love for all your readers to just stop by at the takshashila website and just take a look at the work that we do there's lots of interesting stuff uh, like as i've just given you a brief glimpse but yeah just take a look at the work that we do uh, and i'm sure there's uh, lots of people who were maybe interested but would not know where to start uh, and i think you know 7 years ago when i uh, did this one short course at takshashila uh it sort of created a relationship which today i mean uh, four years later i sort of joined the organization so i think that it's a uh, it would be great if people just want to go and check it out uh, it, it helps me get career direction it might help others also thank you all for listening please visit allindiansmatter.in that's a w l i n d i a n s m a w t e r i n for more columns and audio podcasts you can follow me on twitter at ashraf engineer that's a s h r a f e n g i n w e r and all indians count that's a w l I N D I A N S C O U N T. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at allindiansmatter dot in. Catch you again soon. <laughs>